This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, April 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. When Suzette Kilo's home was stolen by her local government to benefit a large corporation, she helped launch a national effort to seriously examine the circumstances under which the government may seize private property. Now the story of the Kilo case is hitting the big screen in Little Pink House. This week, I spoke with Scott Bullock, who argued the Kilo case before the Supreme Court, and Courtney Balliker, the director of Little Pink House, now in limited release across the United States. Scott, how were you introduced to this case? You were an attorney at the Institute for Justice, and you presume this is one of IJ's pillars, uh, private property. How were you introduced to it? Well, we were started doing uh, more and more of these cases. Uh, it was at, at that time primarily myself and my colleague Dana Berliner started doing these cases uh, starting in the mid-1990s. Our first one, of course, was in Atlantic City against uh, none other than our current president who was trying uh, to get the local government there, the state agency, to uh, take property uh, away from an elderly widow uh, for Trump Casino at the time. And that really touched off – we won that case and it touched off a whole series of cases that we did. And once we won that case, we were inundated with requests and we realized that this was going on throughout the country. And so we started realizing that this was a really serious problem and that it required even more of our attention and resources uh, to address. And so uh, I was at my desk and a letter came in from New London, Connecticut from a local uh, activist there that wanted to um, tell me about a situation in the Fort Trumbull section of New London. And I read it. It uh, accurately described and succinctly described what was going on, and I was immediately outraged by it and said, we've got to check this out. And so that's when I first traveled to New London to meet Suzette and her neighbors and the local folks there that had bandied together to, to help her. Now, the case is Kilo uh, v. City of New London, but of course, she was one of many, many people in that neighborhood who were uh, in initially involved in this challenge. That's exactly right. And Suzette always likes to point that out, that, you know, of course, the the, it, the focus was on her house and it was the little pink house. And she was certainly the, uh, the one of the leaders of this. But it was a true neighborhood effort. Uh, at one time, there were uh, over a dozen property owners that were fighting it. Uh, but several of them were elderly. Oftentimes, their family uh, said they could not continue on with this because it was just too much for them. Unfortunately, several of them died uh, as this controversy was developing. Um, and in many instances, it was uh, caused because of the stress and the uncertainty about, about their losing their homes. Uh, but there were seven property owners, including Suzette, that fought this. And they all stayed together uh, from the very beginning up until the uh, the Supreme Court's decision. So uh, it was Suzette as as one of the leaders, but it was not just her. It was a whole group of dedicated people that were willing to see this through until the end. All right. Now I want to jump a little bit uh, to you know this this was a case that you argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of uh, Ms. Kilo and the Institute for Justice. Um, what when you know when you walked out of the courtroom after the oral argument, what were you thinking then? I thought it was going to be really close. Uh, I thought it was probably going to be five to four. I uh, but I just didn't quite know 
which way, and we didn't know at, at IJ which way it was going to go. Uh, some justices seem to be wanting to look for a middle ground, and so I thought it would potentially be a quite divided court where maybe we could cobble together a five to four on our side, but it would be under different standards and different tests and that sort of thing and a more limited uh, decision with it. Uh, but what ultimately happened, of course, is that uh, they, um, they kind of divided the lines very clearly and the five of them said that economic development is a public use and eminent domain can be used to accomplish uh, the goals of higher tax revenue and more jobs. And four said it could not be uh, as well and it lined up that way. And when you read the uh, dissenting opinions – in, in this case, you have uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, right. uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Rehnquist, and Justice Scalia. That's right. Were those, the four in dissent? Those were the four in dissent. Uh, D Justice O'Connor wrote a dissent and uh, Justice Thomas wrote a lone dissent uh, where he took a very much an originalist approach to the uh, to the takings clause and said, listen, we ought to not – these decisions from even the 1950s and the 1980s that it, it had expanded the use of eminent domain uh, were wrongly decided. But Justice O'Connor in one of her last opinions for the court wrote a blistering dissent that called out the majority. And I think she said something like, something has gone seriously awry in this court's uh, view on this issue. Well, that was Thomas that, that, was that, Thomas, that, that had that, uh, right. that line and had another great line, too, about you're safe in your homes uh, uh, in the, the under the Constitution, um, inside the, the sanctity of the home. It, you just – your homes themselves are not safe as a result of well, it. Well, then it was, there was O'Connor who was saying, you know, what church is safe? That's right. She had the, the wonderful line that came from her oral argument that said – um, uh, that the specter of condemnation hangs over all property. Any uh, the result of this court's decision, a Motel Six can be taken for a Ritz Carlton. Uh, any farm for a factory, uh, and it was this very stirring uh, dissent that came out of. What we were arguing all along is that if you sign off on this, there are no meaningful limits to the use of eminent domain. That was the fundamental theme of our argument. That's what we were stressing in our briefs, and that is what she understood, and that's unfortunately what the court signed off on. So, Courtney Balliker, you directed this film, and it's the kind of – it's a story that has a lot of technical ins and outs, but it is – I mean, at its core, having seen the movie – it is very emotional. And the, the things that jump out at me the most are moments where uh, Catherine Keener, who's playing Suzette Kilo, is talking with her neighbors about their desire to stay. So, so what, I guess, what attracted you to, to be, to, for this, this project? Well, um, <clears throat> my husband and producing partner, Ted Balaker and I, um, we used to produce for other people, and we decided to start our own company, Cortula Productions, and our motto was making important ideas entertaining. And shortly after we started our company, John Kramer of the Institute for Justice shot Ted an email and said, I heard you guys have your own company, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but the book Little Pink House that's all about the Suzette Kilo case is available for a film and TV adaptation. I think you guys would be a really good fit. Now, Ted was very familiar with the case. He had produced for John Stossel, who covered it uh, along with many other ABC correspondents. And, and so Ted was very familiar. He actually remembers where he was when the Supreme Court decision was announced. I think he was like in Minneapolis on a business trip. 
Uh, I was not familiar with the case. It's not really my background. I had been doing a more narrative uh, film, while Ted had been doing more journalistic and um, documentary work. So I read the book written by Jeff Benedict, and I was just blown away. I I couldn't believe that this really happened. I couldn't believe at the complexity of of corruption and and not only that I, I was blown away by this woman named Suzette Kilo who actually stood up against these incredibly powerful people and and I also want to say Jeff Benedict wrote the book in such a way that it it read like a film I mean you you saw the film in your mind reading reading the book and so I said I have to make this so we got on a plane and we flew to the East Coast, Ted and myself, and I got Suzette Kilo's phone number from Kramer, and we said, we want to sit down with you and talk to you about our idea and how we would make this film and why we want to make it, and we want to make sure you're comfortable with it, and thankfully she said yes, and we uh, optioned the book rights from Jeff and her life rights from her, and then we set out to raise the money and make it independently. Now, in, in trying to uh, display sort of the emotional... Uh, moments and beats that uh, Suzette had in the, along in this story, you know, what was something that jumped out at you that says, this is something that we must focus on? What are some of the, the smaller details that you said, we have to get this this part of it right? It was important to get the toll, psychological toll um, that she went through. It was important to show the human face of this. I mean, it wasn't a few weeks out of her life. I mean, this was a 10-year ordeal. And it was critical uh, to me as the director to really immerse the audience in her experience, working long hours, coming home to eviction notices on her own door, trying to get a petition signed, as you mentioned, that scene where she's talking to her neighbors and they're appealing to her as to why they have to stay I was born in this house or my grandfather built it. I mean, these are the personal stories that are necessary to allow an audience to really understand the human toll. And I adapted, I I wrote the script and I adapted it from Jeff's book, of course. And the challenge of it is, I think you mentioned, it's a really complicated case. There's a lot of legalese. There are a lot of moving parts. it's a 400-plus page book, many, many people. And how do you condense this into something that's about an hour and a half to two hours long? It was really hard to pick and choose because there's so many things I couldn't cover that I wanted to, really egregious things that happened to her, really heroic things that Scott and Dana did. And, you know, but there's only so much. So I had to, I had to stick to the elements of the story that were clear enough to explain to an audience what eminent domain is what happened to them, and how it is a case of cronyism. And it was really important. We didn't want it to be this muddled uh, interpretation of, well, Pfizer kicked these people out. No, they didn't. It was all the government. No, it wasn't. (laughs) It was the government and Pfizer working together, and the little guy lost. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to make it independently. We wanted to make sure that 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 messaging was clear that this is this is the outsiders versus the insiders and she and her neighbors were the outsiders and the government and the big corporation were the insiders uh, gene triplehorn who is in in the film i think is just perfectly encapsulates this sort of 
as long as I'm getting my way, I'm a very happy person. Right. Person who's like, I, I this is for progress, mm-hmm. and I want to make good things happen. And you just need to let me make good things happen and quit worrying so much about your house. She was a fascinating character to create. I mean, she she's really a a combination of a few people, just because we have to compress for time. But she was probably my favorite character to write because. Again, I, I did not want this to be a black and white issue. It's a very complicated issue, and it was it was very divisive, as you know, and uh, and controversial. And there are many people who thought that this development, this redevelopment, would be a really good thing. And I think her intentions really were pure in the beginning. Maybe in the beginning of her her life as a social, you know, justice um, uh, champion. But he was she was not out to hurt. People. She was not out to kick elderly people out of their homes, but she just went so far down the rabbit hole with this idea of let's make this a better place. I know what's best for you. And it was really important to Jean Triplehorn that we didn't paint her as a villain because that's too easy. And it's not realistic because people are complicated. Even villains are complicated. They're not all bad. And so, it, so that to me was something that I was worried that if it were in the hands of somebody else, it, it could go down the wrong uh, road creatively. So many people on the other side of this had um, this, and, and certainly the Gene Triplehorn character in the movie uh, conveyed this very well, an ends justify the means approach. I mean, that is what they thought. We have to revitalize New London. Uh, and the the Constitution has exactly the opposite approach. That's one of the central themes of the Constitution is the ends don't justify the means. Yes, government can do certain things that could be important, fight crime, uh, even if they want to try to pursue economic development, but it can't be at the expense of individual rights, that those rights are are um, so fundamental that they have to be protected and that's what was lost in the mix. And uh, and you're absolutely right, Caleb, that movie does a wonderful job of portraying the human toll of, of eminent domain abuse. I mean, that was something that I saw over and over again as we litigated this case is what Suzette and her neighbors had to deal with. It, it, you know, life can be hard. There's so many things that can happen. And that, in addition to that, you're fighting for your home and trying to defend the Constitution. And they did it. Um, and these were people that were not wealthy people. They were really living on the margins. They, um, you know, worried about how they were going to pay their bills, uh, health care for their elderly uh, uh, parents, uh, issues with their kids. You saw all of that while still dealing with this incredibly intense fight over the course of years. So I I, want to put to you that same scene where she's talking – where uh, Catherine Keener is talking to – as Suzette Kilo talking to her neighbors about them wanting to stay. And and it projects a a sense that she regarded this in some ways. And of course, I could ask Suzette Kilo right here. But Scott, you argued the case and you worked very closely with her. Um, Did she feel a responsibility to these people to keep going? I, yeah, I mean, I, I think at at first it was she was this home meant everything to her. It was the first piece of property she had ever owned in her life, and she was forty years old. She was starting a new chapter in her life. Her kids were basically raised at that point. She was going back to school. She was a paramedic. She was studying to become a nurse, 
and and it meant everything to her. And so at first it was about I finally got some peace and I finally have something that is truly my own. With a million-dollar view. Million-dollar view, as she said, a million-dollar view on a nurse's and an EMT's salary uh, uh, with it. Uh, and so – but then she really did see this and as she got to know people in the neighborhood – uh, then it was really not just about her little pink house, but it was about really fighting for her neighbors. And as, as the uh, uh, fight continued, she realized the importance of this issue. And now, you know, Suzette is willing to continue to be an advocate for this uh, and to fight for uh, people and to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else, which is just so wonderful to see. There is a, a transition and I hope I'm not spoiling it, and we'll cut it out if you don't want me to say it. But there is this transition at the end of the film where you go from Catherine Keener to Suzette Kilo, the, the real Suzette Kilo, and it really has a really prof- – because of the story that you've been led up to watching up to that point, and then you realize, oh, right, this is a real person who had to deal with this. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you had, it had that effect on you. That was the intention. Uh, I – I always I wrote that into the script. I always planned on having that be a part of the film because I think that the audience would hopefully walk away from watching her story, understanding the loss, but I don't think you really understand it unless you see that plot of land and especially her standing on it. And that was a hard thing to get her to do, and I completely understand why. Apparently, Suzette's only returned to that spot three times. One was for John Stossel. The second was for me, so we could have that shot in the film. And the third was uh, for the Today Show that we were on yesterday morning. They did a really lovely piece, and she went back out there. And and it is that emotionally straining on her to return to that site. And and she did it. And and I can't imagine not not having that be a part of it because when I we did the festival circuit last year and. We, we played at a lot of festivals, and there were countless times where when that image came up, either people clapped because there's the woman that I just went on this journey with, and she's there, and she's she's standing, you know, or people just just shook their heads with anger. And it just had this it was it was always a very intense reaction. and uh, and I and I think that's okay if people leave really angry because I want people to do something about this. And as Scott said, she has been a wonderful partner in the social action campaign that we will have running alongside this film to use this. This is not defeat. She it is a tragedy for her, but because of her, millions of Americans got to keep their homes because it was this decision and IJ changed things, but there's more that we want to do. And she's right here with us. And IJ's been a tremendous partner in that too. So Scott, um, when you and I have talked about this many times, in fact, I think the first time we spoke about this case was right after the oral argument before I worked here at the Cato Institute. And um, you know, you've described this as one of the most reviled uh, decisions in the Supreme Court's history. And it inspired many states to take action to tighten up their uh, laws regarding uh, eminent domain and make it a little more difficult. Uh, some companies like uh, BB&T, for example, said we're not going to finance operations that involve eminent domain anymore. Um, so one, what happened to this big project in New London, Connecticut, and what you know, what's step two, three, and four 
for uh, making sure that uh, eminent domain is used uh, as a as legitimate public uses. Right. Well, as as you guys were indicating in the discussion about the concluding shots of the film, uh, the uh, project was never built in New London. Uh, where Suzette's home is is now vacant land. It has been uh, now. It's been 13 years after the Supreme Court's decision. There is nothing there. Uh, the development, uh, the private development, was supposed to complement the Pfizer facility that had moved in next door to it. Uh, when Pfizer's tax breaks ran out in 2011, they decided to pack up and leave New London for good. So the city got nothing out of this. State taxpayers were left with close to an $80 million uh, bill uh, as a result of uh, of this just unbelievably poor decision-making on the part of the power brokers in, in the state of Connecticut. But out of this terrible decision came a lot of really good things. 44 states have changed their laws to tighten up uh, eminent domain to better protect property owners. Uh, nine state Supreme Courts have uh, decided uh, that they were not going to follow Kelo under their state constitutions. But this movie is incredibly timely because people forget the lessons of history. And now you have 13 years after the uh, Supreme Court's decision, and we're starting to hear once again rumblings about the need to use eminent domain. And we're starting after years of not doing a lot of eminent domain cases because of what happened in the wake of Kelo. More and more people are contacting us now and cities are starting to say, we've got to get serious about development again and the commercial real estate market's coming back in certain areas uh, for it. So you have to remain eternal, eternally vigilant. Certain states have not changed their laws at all. New York, for instance, it didn't do anything and they continue to abuse eminent domain. Uh, so in those six states, those laws uh, have to be changed. In other states that have sort of middling protections uh, for property owners, they need to be strengthened. And we have to make sure that the court decisions and the laws that really ended this type of abuse remain on the books and they don't try to get make end runs around them. So we're certainly staying on top of it. And as I said, the movie could not be coming out at a better time to remind people what happens when governments go down this road. Courtney Balaker is director of the new film Little Pink House that details what led up to the case of Kilo v. City of New London, Connecticut. Scott Bullock is president of the Institute for Justice. He argued the case before the high court. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.